Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out ways to help clean up the planet and get rid of toxic waste. There's all kinds of different chemicals, gases, contaminants that can ruin your day or the environments. That's why new methods to help suck CO2 out of industrial waste processes, trap lead and understand what's in the water, and also get rid of dangerous PFAS chemicals, well, we find out interesting and innovative ways to help clean up our environment and water supplies. Now you may have heard the term PFAS in relation to environmental damage or maybe dangerous chemicals. It stands for technically per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and they're a collection of human-made chemicals. It includes a whole bunch of different substances like PFOA, PFOS, Gen X, and many others. And they've been used as part of manufacturing and general industry since around the 1940s. Now, the thing is that they're incredibly persistent in both the environment and the human body, which means they don't break down and they can build up over time. This is a problem because the amalgamation and the building up of PFAS can lead to actually serious health problems for humans, as well as for any other biological systems. The problem is you can find PFAS in food, packaged in material that contains PFAS, or maybe grown in PFAS-contaminated soil or water. You can find that in stain and water repellent fabrics, non-sting products like Teflon, polishes, wax, paints, cleaning products. They might be in chrome plating or electronics or used for manufacturing or used in oil recovery. It's also even used in firefighting equipment. So the thing is, once PFAS leaks out of any of these products, gets into the environment, then they can get into living organisms, crops grown, fish, animals, things that aggregate up things through the food chain. So contamination from PFAS is a huge issue. And that's why it's been strongly regulated in many industries for a while now. The problem is, well, the issue is that this PFAS can stick around for a very long time. And tracking and tracing and understanding the health impacts of these and limiting the impact of these is incredibly important. Environmental regulation authorities across the world are continually trying to monitor the spread of PFAS and any sites of potential contamination and undertake remediation works to make those areas safe and remove that contamination source from further impacting human life or biological life in the area. And that remediation is quite difficult because you've got to find and clean up a whole bunch of it. And that's why researchers from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign have recently published in the journal Advanced Functional Material a study on developing a new process and a new material for making the cleanup and the remediation of areas impacted by PFAS much, much easier. Lead authors on this paper were Kion Kim, Paolo Balduguez Medina, Johannes Elbert, Emmanuel Kaya, and they all collaborated together to try and demonstrate a way that you could actually clean up PFAS using a special tunable polymer electrode. Now, this electrode acts as an attractant that can capture and then destroy PFAS. That's pretty amazing because it could not only help us have a more efficient way of cleaning up our environment, it's something that can be done in different conditions, especially in low concentrations in water. Now, some of the lead professors involved in overseeing this study are Xiao Su, Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering, as well as Yuji Men and Roland Cusick from the Civil and Environmental Engineering. Now, they were overseeing this group of younger researchers, as we spoke about earlier, working on this topic. But their idea was to target bodies of water or soil that had been 
leaching this PFAS out. Because if you can take it out of the source, even in these low concentrations, and you prevent it from aggregating up to creatures and crops and so on. Now, since PFAS is actually electrically charged, it's held together by highly stable bonds. And it's also very water resistant. So when you think about most waste disposal and cleanup methods, things that try and break down the bonds and break down the chemical into smaller subcomponents that are easier to handle or clean up, that doesn't work because the bonds in PFAS are so strong. As well, it's water resistant, so trying to mix in some water to try and break it down doesn't work either. So the idea had to involve something very, very different. And that's where the idea came to use the electrical charge nature of them. So they created a a copolymer electrode that could be used to attract, absorb, and capture the PFAS from the water. Now this is important because it basically just sucks out and attracts all of the PFAS in the source water, and then also destroys the PFAS at the same time, making for an incredibly energy efficient and highly organized approach to actually cleaning it up. Not only is it fast and can attract the PFAS out of the material, so you don't have to go hunting for it, it can also actually destroy it and clean it up as well. To test out this method, they took their tunable, nice fancy electrode, and they stuck it into samples taken from wastewater systems across the city all spiked with a known amount, either low or moderate concentration of PFAS. And then within three hours of starting this electrochemical absorption process, they saw a 93% reduction of PFAS concentration in the low, con low concentration example. So the ones that had a small dose of PFAS, after three hours, had 93% reduction. That's a huge, efficient way of reducing the amount of PFAS in that sample. Even the medium moderate spiked sample had an 82% reduction after three hours. So if you'd imagine deploying this in a water treatment plant, wastewater treatment plant, or even in a chemical spill, you have a really rapid way of actually treating the water. Now, this works based on a similar method that Professor Zhao Zhu used to help clean up arsenic. And basically, they've taken a this copolymer electrode approach from one chemical and applied it to another group of chemicals, PFAS. Now, of course, this is a useful tool, a relatively rapid tool that can be used to help clean up PFAS contaminated water. But the same technique that is being used here, first then with arsenic in Professor Sue's early work, but now in more recent work applied to PFAS, the same method could be used to help in chemical separation. In times in industrial processes where you want to sort out and group things, maybe for recycling, maybe for actual production, or maybe in the idea of in pharmaceuticals industry for producing new drugs, you actually need to separate out and purify or concentrate different types of chemicals to make new pharmaceutical products. This technique could also apply to them. So it's an interesting approach that has not only great environmental benefits, but also one that could potentially have a huge benefit to a lot of different industrial and pharmaceutical applications. Some interesting research published in the journal Advanced Functional Materials about using some targeted, tunable methods to help really clean up some of the most dangerous groups of chemicals across our planet and keep water safe for drinking, cooking and growing crops.
One of the big environmental pollutants, as we're all probably well aware, is carbon dioxide, CO2. And many regulations across the world, like the Paris deal or the Green New Deal presented by the European Commission in 2019, aims to, say, for the EU and many other countries like China or Japan, reduce their emissions to zero of carbon dioxide by 2050, which is only 30 years away. Now, to do so requires, for industrial processes, a pretty innovative way of thinking. There needs to be a way to capture all that CO2. We're not talking, strictly speaking here, about burning coal and other ways of just straight, direct CO2 emission. But as part of many industrial processes, mostly you produce a lot of gas as a byproduct of these processes, just as part and parcel of it. So even if you were running on wind power, the industrial process itself could be producing CO2. So how can you cut down on that CO2? Well, if you think about things like industrial waste gases, natural gas, or biogas, biogas, again, is just a recycled form of gas through decomposition. You want to be able to way to capture and separate out that CO2 and use it again for something else. Now, the researchers published in the journal self-reports physical science from the University of Beirut, including researchers Martin Reis, René Seigel, Jürgen Senke, and Joseph Brau. Now, they were investigating a way to develop like a clay-like material. Uh, it's basically an inorganic-organic hybrid. The chemical basis, of course, is a clay-like mineral consisting of hundreds of individual glass platelets. Now, those little shards of glass are actually only one nanometer thick each and arranged precisely one above the other. Now, between these individual glass plates, there are organic molecules that act as the spaces that help make this lattice and this intricate shape. Now, the reason why this is all so designed is that their shape and chemical properties are all designed so that the spaces created are basically perfectly designed to capture and fit CO2, making the perfect home for CO2 to go reside inside this clay between these spaces, between these glass fibres, and particularly only CO2, not other gases. Only carbon dioxide molecules can actually penetrate the pores of this system, and then they basically get trapped inside it. In contrast, other gases, say like methane or nitrogen, or other exhaust gas components, they actually can't penetrate through this clay and get stuck in this lattice structure, mostly due to the size of their molecules. Basically, it's like a sieve that has holes small enough to sort of trap and capture all of the CO2, but not the right shape for capturing nitrogen or methane. That's a pretty interesting mechanism because they can develop then this clay into a membrane based on these clay minerals to actually to allow continuous and selective separation, really energy efficiently, of CO2 from gas mixtures. And this is really important because a process like this can actually act as a passive filter and a passive filtration way of separating gas like CO2 from other gases makes industrial process cleanup actually possible. Because if you can capture the CO2 and it can accumulate inside the cavities of this material, you can actually reuse that CO2 again and again in an industrial process. You can basically have all the CO2 be captured in this clay membrane, then 
basically stretch or open up the membrane, let all the CO2 fall out, capture that obviously in a tank, and then put the membrane back into service. Now you can then use that CO2 again and again in all parts of your industrial processes. And basically you almost have a circular process. You don't need any more CO2 and you don't emit that waste CO2 as well. Now this is what is so fascinating about any of these industrial cleaning up type processes. It's all about how energy efficient you can make the process. If you're able to make the process not only cheap or cost effective to produce in the first place, but also energy efficient to do, it means that you don't actually burn more energy in the cleanup than you would have done by just letting it go. And that's what techniques like this really do. Now they're obviously very complex and this precisely engineered piece of clay and glass structure is very intricate. So difficult to produce, but the energy efficiency of it is incredibly high and the filtration efficiency of it is also very, very good, which makes it an ideal candidate for cleaning up industrial CO2. Now this is a great piece of research from the Universidad Beirut that sort of highlights the way that we can even clean up existing CO2 intensive industrial processes and almost turn them into a circular system. Great work published in the Cell Reports Physical Sciences. One of the most dangerous types of contamination in the environments for people is lead. Now lead could be in the ground or in the groundwater or in the pipes. And this can lead to, as you may be aware of Flint in Michigan, serious problems with the local community of lead poisoning, which can lead to developmental issues, health issues, you name it, for, for people who have consumed a lot of lead. Now the good news, I guess, is that you can buy filters that can actually suck out lead from that water pretty efficiently. That's good. I mean, if everyone has these lead filters on their taps, then, well, it makes the water safer to drink. It would be better to eliminate it entirely, but at least if the risk is going to be there, a way to safely manage it is, of course, better than nothing. But the problem is, these commercially available water filters normally just suck up and absorb lead, but you don't know if there's actually a lot of lead in that water or not. You just know that the filter's blocking it all, or at least if it is, if it's there. So actually understanding if there's lead in the water or how much lead is incredibly difficult. Normally you have to go in there and take samples. A water utility has to come into your house, take samples from your tap for about an hour, and then take that one litre sample back to the labs and test it for lead. So trying to find a way to speed up that process and actually get an idea of how much lead is in the water at that point of use, so on your taps, is an interesting approach being developed by McKevley School of Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. And they've been looking at a way to turn these filters that a lot of many people have to filter their water to actually help tell people about how their water is behaving. And this is published in the journal Environmental Science, Water Research and Technology. So what they're really trying to overcome here, aside from just purely the time it takes for a water utility to go out in samples, everyone's taps, is that a single sample, or even a one litre sample, doesn't tell you a lot about actual use of water. For instance, filling a one litre jug, you may get a different concentration of lead than filling a small cup. Maybe 
the lead is all coming through as a rush at the start. So you act with a really high concentration in a cup size as opposed to a full litre. There's a lot of variabilities in here. And that's what Professor Daniel Gleimer from the Department of Energy, Environmental Chemical Engineering was trying to investigate. So getting a more realistic and real-time understanding of the amount of lead in a system is much better. Now, a better method would be actually use the filters that are in place to provide an accurate picture of household water use, but also household lead concentration exposure. Now, most commercial filters will last for a certain period of time. Typically, a filter lasts for around 100 gallons in the US or 380 liters. Now, that's 40 times the amount of a typical water sample. So getting that much information through the life of a filter is actually a useful amount exposure indicator for how much lead there is in the system or how much lead people have actually been exposed to. The problem is it's very difficult to make an efficient way of assessing the concentration of that lead whilst you're filtering it out. Now, Gaima's approach was to take what's used commonly for monitoring air quality and take that approach to apply it to water quality. And in the instance here, you have basically some sort of sampling tube that's collecting air as it's exposed to it during the filtering process. And the tube fills up, you take away that tube, you test the concentration of inside that tube, and you put it back. And that gives you a real-time indication of what was being filtered. Then it was, well, let's do the same thing with lead. Problem is, most filters are made of like a block of activated carbon almost looks like a block of coal. The water filters through the tiny holes in the carbon. The carbon binds to the lead, trapping it before the water can flow out of your tap. So the problem is, when you're using this, you're, the carbon is acting really strongly to basically suck the lead out of the water and make the lead stick to the carbon. It'll be so strongly attracted to the carbon instead of being in the water. And that's great, but then how do you get it off the carbon? That's where it gets tricky. So you have to use a lot of acid. So that's where grad student Wayu Pan came in, developed with Professor Geimar a number of different approaches that basically pass an acidic solution through the filter that would basically have the acid sit slowly through that filter, dissolve out the lead, clear it all, 100% of it out, and then you end up the lead in a sample container. Now, it took about two liters of acid to do that and about half an hour of time. So you may ask, what good is a filter that gets acid dumped through it? And how is that an easy way of getting a sample? Well, the thing is, since these filters are effectively a limited use item, they only work for so long before they get effectively filled with lead, or basically the bonds degrade sufficiently that they won't attract any more lead into them. So you can only use a filter for so long, as we said, around 100 gallons or 380 litres. So you already have to take out this filter and replace it. But instead of throwing it in the garbage, you could pour the acid over it and then actually have the measurement for you of how much lead it protected you from. So a simple step that you could add to basically the filter replacement process that would tell you exactly much lead concentration it has helped you prevent reaching your cups or your cooking water or whatever. And that's incredibly important because then even if the customer doesn't care, Maybe the company that sold the filters, or maybe the water utility, they could simply collect everyone's filters from their houses and do this test en masse. And then all of a sudden, you have a really simple way of mass water quality testing, effectively sifting through the garbage, well, the laced filters from all the people in the area, and you can actually just ask them to send you or go and collect these 
waste filters once they're finished being used and just run it through the testing process. Meaning a water utility can do this on scale quickly, not relying on individual testing. And that's a great idea because it helps streamline the process of testing and improving the water networks and knowing if you have problems. It's a great research published in the journal Environmental Science, Water Research and Technology by researchers Wayu Pan, Elizabeth Johnson and Daniel Geimer. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Find out about innovative ways to clean up our environment and our water supplies using advanced material and chemical sciences, whether it be cleaning up PFAS, lead contamination, or even CO2 from industrial processes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.